Hello, hello. I am your host, Dorotia Barna, and you are listening to the Mind Society Speaker Series, where we invite professors, researchers, and graduate students specializing in psychology to share and discuss their unique research questions, most recent studies, along with their fascinating findings. Coming from some of the top universities throughout the world, these experts will share what they've been working on in their labs and illuminate their discoveries so that we can use this information as sources of knowledge to elevate the quality of our lives and the way we engage with and interpret others. Thanks for listening. Hello there. Today's guest is Dr. Tom Gilovich, a preeminent social psychologist who's been conducting research in judgment and decision-making at Cornell for decades. Having received his PhD from Stanford, he's authored and co-authored numerous books on these topics, including heuristics, cognitive biases, and behavioral economics. He's been cited frequently in peer-reviewed journals for his work and has contributed numerous theories in bias and heuristic research. Dr. Gilovich will help explain why these phenomena are so important to understand and the negative impacts they can have on our lives. He'll share his insight during my conversation with him up next. Well, good afternoon, Dr. Tom Gilovich. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining the Mind Society Speaker Series. I'm really excited to have you on, on the show today. Happy to be here. So you are a powerhouse in the world of psychology. From what I've gathered, you you are mostly doing work within the social psychology realm, and also you focus a lot on heuristics and biases. Um, so I first wanted to maybe have you define what a heuristic and what a cognitive bias is to our listeners, just to get started. Sure. Uh, heuristic is usually defined as some kind of mental shortcut. There is usually an elaborate procedure that might get you to the right answer. If I was going to uh, come up with the answer of the number of people in a lecture hall, I can do that in an intensive way by literally counting all of them. Um, but that can be difficult. And many times I don't need to know the exact answer. I just need a very good approximation. So I can look and go, ah, looks like there's uh, 40 rows and each row has about 20 people in it and half the seats are empty. So I do some quick multiplication and I come up with an answer that's probably wrong, but <laughs> very serviceable. Uh, that's the idea of uh, heuristic. And some of them are very deliberate like that. I'm choosing to come up with this substitute. Many others are ones that we aren't aware of. And that's the work that Kahneman and Tversky were so famous for, that if you ask me, uh, what's the likelihood that this person with a certain personality description is, let's say, a lawyer, I just think, hmm, does the person seem like a lawyer? And I don't even realize that I'm answering one question, how likely is it that the person is a lawyer, by substituting the answer to a different question, how much does he seem like a lawyer? And people do seem largely uh, like the categories to which they belong, but not perfectly, of course. There are a lot of lawyers who don't seem lawyerly like at all, a lot of engineers who don't seem like engineers, etc. Where do these differentiations come? So I know that cognitive biases, as just from what you mentioned and how I'm interpreting it, it's kind of 
they kind of fall into different categories or groups. So you mentioned that some people don't fall into this category so so well. Why would some people follow into it so well? And why wouldn't some fall into it, into this sort of category so well? Um, yeah, the, the idea of bias is a, a systematic departure from the right estimate. So if we go back to the example of estimating the number of people in the lecture hall, my procedure is probably going to be unbiased. Oh, well, roughly how many rows are there? How many people in a row? Roughly have multiplication, blah, blah, blah. I come up with an answer. There's not really anything there that's uh, likely to systematically move me in the wrong direction. So there will be an error in my judgment. But if I make a number of those judgments over time, they won't be systematically biased. That is, the errors will mm -hmm. tend to go in one direction. Whereas the kinds of things that social psychologists and judgment and decision-making researchers have studied are the ones where the errors are systematic. Interestingly, very recently, Danny Kahneman has started to focus on noise in our judgments, just purely the errors that go in one direction or the other in some unpredictable fashion. And so famously, one of the heuristics of judgments that uh, judgment that Kahneman Tversky talked about is the anchoring and adjustment heuristic. When I'm trying to estimate, let's say, how long does it take Mars to orbit the Earth? I don't know the answer to that. You probably don't know the answer to that. There are very few people who know the answer to that, but we're all asked the question, what do we do? I don't know. Well, the Earth takes 365 days. Mars is farther out from the sun than the Earth is, so it's going to take longer. So, mm, I don't know, 415? You start with one value and you adjust, and it turns out that the adjustments tend to be insufficient so people are, not everyone, but the estimates in general tend to be too short. People estimate that it takes less time for Mars hmm. to orbit the sun than it actually does. And that would be an example of a set of errors that are systematically biased. And that's what we mean by biases. And, and we, so we tend to be, we tend to these errors, then the estimates are less why don't they tend to be maybe a little bit more? Why don't we want to maybe overestimate as opposed to underestimate? Well, part of it has to do with the starting value. So you start with 365 and you say, well, it's going to be more than that. And the most natural way you approach that is you come up in a kind of a mysterious fashion, another number that's greater than 365. And now you start to approach that in a kind of confirmatory mindset. You ask yourself the question, hmm, 395, is that enough? Notice just by asking the question, is that enough? You're biasing, you're not asking, is that insufficient? Is this enough? Is gonna lead you to a yes response sooner than on average is going to be appropriate. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So the studies that you've been conducting recently, have they been revolving mostly around uh, heuristics and cognitive biases, or have you been focusing in other different areas? Um, one of the great things about this job is anything is fair game. And so if something happens out in the world that seems puzzling and in need of explanation, uh, you as a social psychologist or judgment decision-making uh, researcher, you can 
study it and no one's going to think, hey, that's not your job. Don't do that. Don't spend time on that. So you can study anything. And as a result, one of the great gifts of this career I stumbled into, we make judgments and decisions about everything. So sometimes I'll study judgment in the world of politics, uh, in relationships, in happiness, in sports, all over the map. Um, so we're doing, yes, so some of the work is related to the heuristics of judgment, but other stuff is just, oh, this is taking place in the world. We, are, we need to understand that better. So what areas have you been interested in lately, specifically? One area is what's going on in the world politically, um, the notion that um, the rise of white nationalism, people feeling that if we don't do this and what they plan to do is uh, very anti-democratic, we're going to lose our country. And you just think, well, wait a minute, if you're engaging in anti-democratic processes, isn't that losing the country by itself. Mm -hmm. um, but the people fervently who say that actually believe it. And so you need to understand as noxious as you might find those beliefs, as unwarranted as they might seem, we still have to understand them. And so uh, one of my graduate students and I, one of my graduate students, Shai David I and I, wanted to study the kind of resentment that is felt, by, that's fueling a lot of this. And so we did this work on what we called the headwind tailwind asymmetry, which is just a, a kind of fundamental fact of life that makes it a little bit of a challenge to be as grateful as maybe we all should be and makes it easy to be resentful when things don't go our way. So hmm. if you listen to some conservative media outlets, uh, you'll often hear, oh, there's a war on white Christian men. What is, why do people think that? Well, the plight of, or the station of white Christian men probably isn't as good as it was a little while ago. This enormous advantage that they've enjoyed for a hundred years is diminished a little bit, but come on, a war, I mean, it, it's still a world that favors them. But it doesn't seem that way to them in the same way that you have to pay, you know, we use this running or cycling metaphor that if you're running into the wind, you're going to be aware of that headwind because you've got to deal with it. And when the wind changes or you change direction, you're going to be aware that, oh, now I have the wind at my back. That feels good. But you're only going to be aware of that for a second. Pretty soon you're going to lose sight of it. And what's true with respect, metaphorically, with respect to running is true of all of life. We have to pay attention to the barriers in front of us in order to overcome them. The advantages that we have, we don't need to pay attention to them. And I think that is feeding some of the political polarization that's so easy for all of us to think, hey, this isn't as good as it used to be, or I have it bad, or my group has it bad. Um, and to lose sight of all of our privileges. It's, uh, you know, we can be grateful and some people are aware of a great many of their privileges, but it's just cognitively harder to attend to them because you don't have to. And it's very easy to attend to the obstacles you have to overcome because you have to overcome them. So that's one of the kinds of things that we're studying. Another thing is this what happens to people who have joined, let's say, white supremacist movements? How much is that tied into the often repeated 
idea that the United States will soon be a minority majority country, that you know whites won't be the majority. What does that mean to people? Does it mean that, okay, we're not going to be over 50%, but uh, white people will still be by far the biggest of all of the minorities, which has one meaning, or do you suddenly think, uh-oh, we're below 50%, the other minorities are going to gang up on us, and we're not going to have any political power at all, everything will be turned over to them. So we're doing studies on what do white people understand the idea of being a minority majority to me do they how similar do they think they are to the other ethnicities in the country versus how similar all the ethnicities are to each other and that's just really getting started so i don't have any answers to that one unlike the headwinds tailwinds idea got it i was going to ask you if you received any responses back yet from these individuals as far as how they feel we're going uh, we're gonna to launch the study hopefully early next week. There's a couple more details on the survey instrument that we need to work out. And I'm meeting with the student, Stephanie Tepper, on Friday to nail down those details. So stay tuned. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that study as far as the findings and the data that you gather. I'll be really curious to see what comes back from that. I'd love for us to maybe talk about a few different studies as opposed to uh, honing in on one. I thought this one was really interesting, but I, I'd love to maybe hear if there are other ones that you've been working on too and kind of unpack those as well. Yeah. Well, let me talk about a, a broader theme that runs through a lot of this stuff and illustrate it with some particular studies, which is you know, I went to graduate school at a time intending to be a social psychologist. That's what I was familiar with. And to some extent, that was uh, the result of my graduate education. But when I arrived there, it also happened to be at a time when um, the judgment decision-making world was just taking off. And Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman were both visitors there at Stanford. And it just seemed so compelling, all the work that they were doing, that it changed my career. And so I now think of myself as straddling the border between judgment decision-making and social psychology. Uh, Lee Ross and Dick Nisbet came up, came out with their human inference book right around that time that was a, took, introduced social psychologists to judgment decision-making and vice versa, integrated those two fields. And that's sort of the template that I followed uh, throughout my career. So for example, we we're talking earlier about the anchoring and adjustment heuristic. Well, how does that play out? Not when you're answering factual questions, how many people in this lecture hall, how long does it take Mars to orbit the sun, but social events. Uh, we often have to estimate what's going on in someone else's mind. And that's very hard to do. Um, we don't have any direct access to it. And so one of the best ways we have is to start with our own minds and then go from there. And happily, we are aware enough to know that what I'm thinking and feeling is different than other people are. So let me adjust for that. Well, if the adjustments are insufficient, you're going to end up with biased responses about what other people are thinking. So we did this research at the, basically at the millennium on what we call the spotlight effect, that people are think that other people are paying attention to them, what they're doing, what they're wearing, what they're saying, then other people actually are. Other people, yeah, they attend to us, but they're also busy. 
They're concerned with their own lives and so on. So they are not going to be as focused on us as we think. So we did these studies where people came to the lab and we gave them a t-shirt and said, first thing you have to do is wear this shirt and we'll explain later what you need to do. And it's a picture of the pop singer, Barry Manilow, who for Cornell students at the time, that was, uh, it wasn't retro cool to be doing that. In fact, it was embarrassing. And then we had them estimate, we put them in a social situation and took them out and had them estimate the percentage of people who would have noticed that they were wearing a Barry Manilow t-shirt and they wildly overestimated. And we tied that to the anchoring and adjustment heuristic that people are very focused on what's going on in their own lives. Oh my God, these experimenters are making me wear this uh, Barry Manilow t-shirt. Oh, this is terrible. What are people going to think? Oh, you know what? Maybe people are going to be a little preoccupied. Maybe I let me calm down a little bit. Well, you're not calming down enough. You're not adjusting enough. That's, uh, that's the idea. And so I mentioned that example as an example of studying something that is really the combination of social psychology. We're talking about social circumstances and your estimates about what other people think and judgment and decision-making, tying that to the anchoring and adjustment heuristic. So just kind of going back to that, people were more in their own heads as opposed to what they thought other people were interpreting them to be. Can you unpack that theory just a little bit more? Sure. So I need to, my, when I'm worried, let's say, potentially worried about what you might think of me in the midst of doing something potentially embarrassing, I need to understand what's going on in your head. And I can't, there's no way I can know that directly, uh, what's in your head. So I've got to do some inferential work. How can I do that? Well, let me start with, oh my, I, I start with myself and the self is all flush with, this is really embarrassing. And I then adjust, I know you're not me. You're not as aware as I am, as I'm putting on this shirt that it says Barry Manilow here. So I kind of calm down. Well, maybe the person will give, some people will give me a, cut me some slack, uh, some people won't notice, etc. But I'm starting with this very powerful image of the shirt and what it means for me. I adjust to try to figure out what it means for you and the adjustment tends to be insufficient. I can't approach it in an unbiased fashion. What would another, how would another mind see it? I approach it by starting with the self and that distorts the estimate a bit and that research really was inspired by earlier research that we had done on what do another JDM kind of question. We make decisions all the time. What kinds of decisions do we regret the most? Things that we did that we wish we hadn't done or things that we didn't do that we wish we had. And at the time, a lot of work suggested that of course you were gonna regret the things that you did because you easily could not have done them. You could have just said, no, let me, don't do that. And you erase it in your mind. And then you're living with a mental world where this bad stuff didn't happen. It's easy to undo a problematic action. It's harder to insert an action uh, mentally to change the outcome. And there was work showing that at least in the short term, you regret mistakes of action more than mistakes of inaction most famous example for students is taking a multiple choice test. You think the answer is one thing and then you think about it. Oh, wait, maybe it's not A, maybe it's C. 
if you change to C and later find out that the answer was A, you just, oh man, I had the right answer. What am I doing? You kick yourself. If you think it's A, you're thinking about switching to C, you stick with A and you find out it's C, that bothers you too, but not nearly as much. The mistake of action hurts more than the mistake of inaction. Interesting. I thought that was interesting too, but it also seemed to conflict with all these accounts of, you know, autobiographical accounts of people saying, I only, I'm on my deathbed. I regret the things I didn't do rather than the things that I did. And so how do we resolve those? And the idea is that there's a temporal pattern to the experience of regret, which is, uh, yeah, you do regret your actions more in the short term, your inactions more though in the long term, partly because you experience more regret over these actions. So you do things, you apologize to other people, you change course to make it better, you rationalize it, whereas the inaction just sits there and gnaws at you and you think, oh, why didn't I ever do this? And so it's uh, our inaction regrets that stay with us longer. Hmm. And the way that ties into the work on the spotlight effect is we showed that, and therefore the bit of, bit of implicit advice is the Nike slogan. Well, just go do it. And I don't think that's quite appropriate. That is, there's a bunch of, I don't want to encourage people to just go do it. That can lead to drug abuse, uh, incarceration, broken marriages, all sorts of bad things. And so I want to resist that. And what we found in studying people's regrets is a more qualified version of that, which is a lot of the regrets of inaction where people were things where people wanted to do something, but they were worried about the social consequences. And they seemed overblown. And that's what the spotlight effect actually examined, that a lot of these social consequences you're worried, what will other people think? Well, they're busy with their own lives. They're going to think about you much less. So the advice is a qualified version of the Nike slogan. It's not just do it. I was once on a hiking trip with some Australians, and this one guy said, you know, when we got to a mountain stream, he said, uh, you, you never regret a swim. And that's true. And I've taken that to heart. And now when swimming opportunities happen, I basically jump into them. But of course, it's not strictly true. That is, some people have swam and drowned. And uh, so I, I don't really want to embrace the just do it. Oh, the water looks dangerous here. Oh, you never regret a swim. No, not that. The modified advice is, look, if the reason you're thinking about not swimming is, oh, I look ridiculous in these swim shorts, get over it. There, no one's going to care about your swim shorts, go for a swim. How heavy of a weight is, I, I guess, the social influence around us uh, when we do make judgments or make decisions? Uh, well, it, that's hard to titrate that, to know, you know, to put a number on it. Um, but the research on the spotlight effect and a bunch of other things suggests that we give it enormous weight we are you know social psychologists like to say we're social creatures through and through and and we evolved to live with other people and uh now in today's world we probably could live strictly by ourselves uh but we evolved in a world where that just really wasn't possible if you would if you tried to go it alone you weren't gonna get very far so we are hypersensitive to the opinions of others, and we see that reflected in a variety of avenues throughout social life. And the reason why I ask that question is, and perhaps 
I'm kind of answering my own question, but I feel as though we, we have our own inner dialogue as far as for making decisions and casting judgment on certain events and situations. But I feel like I, I wanted to ask that question to understand how much do we influence that versus kind of um, the social external world around us. But then I, I was also thinking that the external and social world influences our inner dialogue, therefore affecting the judgment and decision-making that, that happens. Absolutely. No, you put your finger right on it. And some of the hardest work to do in social psychology is to distinguish between things we do or think for ourselves and things we do uh, for others or think because of others. That is, if we keep hearing these voices from other people of X, Y, and Z, those become the voices in our heads. And uh, how do we, you know, which does it even make sense to say, oh, this voice is purely mine? That, that's just very hard to distinguish. And there are a lot of efforts to do that. Is this just social desirability? I'm saying this or thinking this to curry other people's good opinion, or do I actually believe it? That's a tough question because, again, other people's view, we've internalized other people's views. Absolutely. So just to tie in, there's definitely a lot of similarities, obviously, between heuristics and cognitive biases and the way in which that we make judgments and decisions based on those different heuristics and, and, and biases that we, we experience. So I, I wanted to get your opinion as an expert in this sort of area. What can one do to combat these cognitive biases that we experience? Yeah, um, the broadest answer, and I, you know, this can sound a little pie in the sky, but I do believe it. And I think that I have seen it. That is, this is one of the best examples of uh, knowledge will set you free. Education works here. What we do when we go to college is to uh, not master particular sets of material. Well, maybe in the engineering college, the stresses on metals, what, what's going to hold up a bridge or not. You better, you better have that down if you're going to be a civil engineer. But above and beyond that, we're learning how to think critically. And the world of judgment and decision-making, I think, has elevated that teaching, has elevated that discussion of what does it mean to think critically. And when you study this stuff, you look at uh, graduate students in social psychology or judgment and decision-making, they're quick to say that, oh, that's just a selection effect, or, uh-oh, I think we're guilty of the confirmation bias here. Let's look for things that we think are at variance with this proposal. Those are mental habits, and we can instill them. We practice them by uh, studying them, and, uh, and they do seem to generalize. Generalization is always difficult, but it, it does seem to work to some degree. Get a great college education. And perhaps minor in psychology. <laughs> there are studies showing that uh, now they are designed by psychologists, so they have to be viewed with a little bit of suspicion at least. But they do show that the psychologists face this problem of always having to deal with messy, second best kind of data. You'd really like to do this study, but you can't, so you have to do this study. So you're always dealing with messiness and immersion in that messiness teaches you just how difficult it is to really understand nature's secrets. And that makes people reason better. 
So yes, uh, get an education and get an education <laughs> in psychology. Yeah, good. Great conclusion there. How about we, we end with that? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd like to, I think this would be a great segue to discuss your most recent book, Wisest One in the Room, Speaking of Education, pick up this book and you'll get in tune to a lot of the tips and takeaways and secrets that, that what we're discussing as far as heuristics and biases and how to master them and move forward without them really affecting you so much. So what are some things, some takeaways that you could tell us about the wisest one in the room, that book? Well, there are you know, a number of broad themes uh, that are familiar to someone who studied social psychology. One is um, we need to recalibrate our intuitions a little bit. At least in Western interdependent societies, we tend to emphasize personal determination um, quite a bit. And it turns out that we overdo it a bit. We tend to think of behavior as more due to the beliefs and traits and dispositions of the actor and don't appreciate enough just how powerful some very subtle details of situations, particularly the social situations and the concern people have about, I don't want to do that tiny little thing because it might be embarrassing. The, the things we do to avoid embarrassment, which are part of the circumstance, those are just much more powerful drivers of behavior. And this is a lesson that's been picked up by the allied field of behavioral economics and the work on nudge that Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein are uh, duly famous for, which is if you want to change people's behaviors, we intuitively, following that dispositionist logic, we try to motivate people. Come on, just have more of this drive on the inside and you know, you'll eat better, etc. And the idea is, no, just try to nudge people. This is an idea that comes from the social psychologist, uh, Kurt Lewin, that if you're trying to change behavior, figure out what's preventing it and try to take away those barriers, do a barrier analysis, which is all about understanding the circumstance and what is it that's blocking the behavior. Change those circumstances and you'll get uh, more of it. The idea that we've already talked about in terms of the confirmation bias, that's part of a broader focus we have in the book on we're like the apocryphal set of people who are touching one part of the elephant and uh, think we're seeing the whole thing when in fact we can only think we have access to the whole thing when we only have access to a part of it. We look at the world through a pretty tiny peephole and making inferences about the rest and understanding that is the implicit message is expand that keyhole, uh, make it a wide window. And we talk about various ways of doing that. That's amazing. So yes, the book in its title says that you can think clearly, make better decisions, and possibly even influence people. So I hope everyone has a chance to pick up that book. Thank you so much, Dr. Tom Gilovich. I really appreciate your time today. And we look forward to all of the work that you're doing in the future, especially that study that you mentioned earlier. Thank you so much again. It's my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tom Gilovich. Tune in a couple weeks from now for our next guest, Harvard-based psychology professor, Dr. Sam Gershman, where we'll be discussing his research within the realm of computational cognitive neuroscience. If these types of conversations interest you, hit subscribe below. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay curious.